0: This is a class four of our doxological counseling series, looking at what counseling has to do with the glory of God and how it ought to be impacted by a concern for God's glory. And so today what we'll be talking about is the role of faith in worship, the role of faith in worship. So let me pray and then I'll uh, explain what we'll, we'll be doing. God, you are so good to us, uh, to this church uh, in particular. Thank you so much for your word, the men that you've gifted to bring your word in our body. Um, Smedley, his preparation uh, that demonstrates, just shows every week as he feeds us so well from your word. God, I pray that you would equip us even now to be better counselors, uh, better counselors of our own souls, who are better equipped to know what is true, to reflect on that truth uh, more quickly, to cling to that truth more tightly, and that you would be pleased to make us uh, a people who function as a light in the valley as we live lives of obedience, uh, lives of of faithfulness to you, and make us better counselors of one another and, and of others that we would be better able to help each other, to turn the hearts of others to your word, to behold your glory, and to be changed by what we know to be true. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. The role of faith in worship. That's our subject today. Uh, If you haven't heard the past three classes, this now puts us... uh, a little bit over halfway through our series. If you haven't heard those first three classes, I encourage you to go back and listen to those. You can find those on our website. And, and what we're talking about in instructing worshipers to the praise and glory of God, we are, are talking about counseling in such a way that prioritizes God's glory and His greatness in the same way that God Himself does And as you counsel in that way, you are bringing God glory in your counseling, in the counseling methods you employ. And the goal of counseling is the same. The goal that you want for your counselee in counseling is the same goal that you have in bringing counsel to them. The glory of God. You want the counselee to effectively, to better glorify God. And so you as the counselor has, have it as your agenda item to glorify God in your counsel, which happens all the time, formally, informally, whenever you're instructing someone, giving them advice, that would fit into the biblical category of counsel. And so you have it as your goal to glorify God in the counsel that you give, and you have it as your goal to help the person you're counseling to do the same thing, glorify God in whatever issue you're dealing with. And so we talked about in doing that, uh, we need to have a big view of who God is. We need to have a big, grand, majestic view of who God is the same way that Scripture does. And we should know that everything, including counseling, exists for His glory. That means it exists to display the ultimate worth that God possesses, His glory. It exists to display whatever is great, Something that is great about God. That's why all things exist, including our counseling. Last week we talked about the, since the gospel is the primary way that God has chosen to glorify himself by putting forth his son as a substitute to endure the wrath of God on the behalf of sinners before resurrecting back to life, that message. That if sinners believe they will be saved, he has chosen primarily to glorify himself through that way. And therefore, we need to know how to hold that in our counseling. And we talked about that last week. This week, what we're going to talk about is the role of faith in worship. Since it is man's unique responsibility, obligation, and really privilege to respond to God's revelation of himself... In what we call worship, then we need to know what role faith actually plays in us being worshipers. That is, because God is aiming to have glory in all things, that means we must worship Him. And in our worship, we are ascribing ultimate worth to God and displaying His glory in some way. And so faith is really crucial. ...to being an effective worshiper. It is impossible to worship God... ...rightly apart from faith. And what we'll see today is that faith... ...permeates true worship in both salvation... ...and in sanctification. Faith is the entrance... ...into right worship in salvation. And... ...faith is also not only the entrance but what permeates uh, true worship throughout the rest of the Christian life, however long that shall be. So you have uh, on your outline, or oh, before I get to the outline, actually, uh, you have a, a handout. I, I meant to print that out last week. Um, on the handout, God's concern for his glory. And I forgot to bring one up here with me. But you have, uh, yeah, let me... Uh, On this handout, this is just a passage list of various verses that go in different categories that talk about what God is doing to get glory uh, for himself. So the first category, creation primarily exists for God's glory. And then you've got Old and New Testament passages that demonstrate all things in creation were made for God's glory. Uh, People benefit because God glorifies himself. And then you have passages that talk about God actually doing things that are beneficial to man for the sake of his own glory. For my name's sake, for my name's sake is, is the refrain in those passages. And you see that that's actually beneficial to those who believe. Salvation itself primarily exists for God's glory, God saves to reveal, and then specific attributes of God are what follow. So, the greatness of his love. So, that's God glorifying his love in saving people. God saves to reveal the greatness of his power. So, he's glorifying his power. He glorifies his grace in saving people, uh, his patience, and then righteousness and wrath as well. And then you have even heaven and hell, eternity exists for the glory of God um, because it is in eternity that he is continuing to do the same thing that he's been doing for all of eternity is putting his attributes on display. And so some are vessels of mercy in the eternal state in heaven. They exist for God's glory and he glorifies himself through those who make it to heaven. And the same is true of hell. He pours out his wrath to display, uh, his wrath, to glorify His wrath in hell forever as well. And so, use that as a reference as, as you need, as you're able. I hope that's a, a helpful resource to you. On your, your notes for today, what we see is that faith in God permeates all true worship of God. Faith in God permeates all true worship of God. Worship that is pleasing to God cannot take place apart from faith. Believing in God is what produces our initial as well as our ongoing worshipful responses to God. True worship requires real faith. And what we mean by faith, the way I'll be using that is simply taking God at his word. That is a basic definition of faith is simply taking God at his word. Whatever God says, whatever God reveals, the person who possesses faith is taking him to be speaking truth and just believing whatever he has said. That's about himself. That's about man. That's about life, salvation, sin, and all other things biblical. Whatever God has said, to believe him is to possess faith. Now, to believe God as we said is the initial response it's the first response in all right worship turn to the book of romans there are lots of passages in romans that that mention faith as paul is expounding the gospel that's obviously something that we would expect to see in romans from the outset of the book in the first chapter He mentions that he is the, has been made an apostle, called to be an apostle, in verse 1, set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son who was born, a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to do something. That is to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. There you you see two things that we've been discussing. Uh, The obedience of faith is what Paul's apostleship was all about. Specifically among the Gentiles, not for the sake ultimately of the Gentiles. Do you see that? In verse 5, at the end of verse 5, to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for God's namesake. That's another way of saying for God's glory. For the glory that God gets to display through those believing Gentiles. And it's the obedience of faith, the obedience that is attached to faith, the obedience that comes with faith is what Paul was was after. So not just, hey, I'm glad you believe, on to the next town. But the, great, the accomplishment of the Great Commission, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. First, that requires faith, and then obedience comes following on the heels of, of faith. That is what Paul's apostleship was about. In verses 16 and 17, he mentions, as he gets into an explanation of the gospel... He's not ashamed of the gospel, verse 16, because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Those who possess saving faith in Christ, not only does faith impact their their initial conversion and change them, at conversion, but this is something that they are called to for the rest of their lives. Not only are they saved by faith, but they continue to live by faith. That is the mark of all true believers. All true worshipers live by faith. You have some other references there that include and discuss faith uh, in chapter three. The way that the benefits of the gospel are laid hold of in conversion is by faith. Uh, Paul says that we have peace with God. We have, uh, we've been justified by faith, and therefore we have peace with God. He turns the corner that we've already talked about in chapter 11 into chapter 12, and it's by those same mercies that they now believe that they're called to present themselves as living sacrifices in chapter 12, verse 1. So Paul can actually appeal to, since they believe and they have experienced the great mercy of God in the gospel, he can then say, as people who worship the God of mercy, present yourself as living sacrifices. And then turn over to 1423. This will help just make the point. These people who turned to God and became true worshipers in salvation as paul goes into a discussion in romans 14 about how to help weaker brothers who have a less informed conscience who are still believing that christian that things that christians are at liberty to do are actually sinful he's teaching the church how to deal with them for those believers who were learning how to treat the weaker brother, as well as the weaker brother who was tempted to do those things he saw other Christians doing that they were at liberty to do, he sort of ends that discussion at the end of chapter 14 by saying this, but he who doubts, in verse 23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, that is, if his conscience is having a problem with him eating meat, specifically because his eating is not from faith. It's not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. That is to say, for the Christian, faith is essential to our ongoing worshipful responses to God because apart from faith, there is no pleasing God. There is no obeying God if our obedience is not coming from faith, from taking God at his word, from believing God. And so what we'll discuss is actually in counseling, since it's impossible for a counselee to please God apart from faith, then helping them believe is really what we're called to in counseling. We're called to inform their minds in such a way that seeks to elicit a worshipful or faithful response. Hebrews 11 is the the best place that I can think of to to have this discussion. Hebrews 11. Because in Hebrews 11, what's what's going on with the church that's hearing this sermon, that's uh, receiving... These words from the author, they are being tempted after having believed Jesus and turned away from everything that they knew in the Jewish system. They are tempted because of the difficulty of embracing Jesus to go back, to forsake all of the, the promises and go back to what is Jewish what they've been practicing as as a works righteousness under the Jewish system. And so the author is helping them cling to faith. This is an audience who's already claimed to have embraced Jesus in salvation. He's talking to people who are already saved. And his point here is to help them endure. And what he does in chapter 11 is he reminds them of a whole host of Old Testament saints who have believed in the Christ that they actually saw come and was crucified. And he's going to remind them of the very things that they did by faith. They weren't relying on things that they could see as the, the audience is tempted to go back to things that they can see. Hey, there's a temple... They're still making sacrifices. They're still practicing feast days. Should we go back to that? He's going to remind them that all of these people acted prior to having seen faith, what they were waiting on. And so as we talk about the role of faith in worship, this really serves as a, a great example uh, for us of, of, what, of how that looks. In Hebrews 11, 19 times, the phrase, by faith, by faith, by faith, appears. What we'll see is that faith in God is causing each of these Old Testament characters mentioned to actually do something. So unless we're confused that, hey, all, all we're focusing on when we're talking about faith is, is uh, just believing and no more, that's not it. Because what we'll see is that their faith actually caused them to work. It caused them to act. Now, the, the two things are distinct, right? Faith and works, right? We don't want to confuse those things. Um, to believe God is not inherently the same as, as the works that follow, but they are inseparable, right? Uh, Steve and I met with, with Mormons earlier in the week, and that was a distinction that we had to keep drawing. Nope. We're not talking about the works that follow. We're talking about simply believing for, for salvation, right? After you agree that people are justified by faith alone, then we can talk about works. But the faith that saves saves by faith alone, right? But that faith that does save, that truly saves, does not come by itself. And so what we're having described for us in Hebrews 11 is not the faith that these people possessed in their initial conversion. You'll notice with all of these examples, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Moses' parents, their conversion is not discussed here in this chapter. And so all of those times we see the phrase by faith, by faith, by faith, it's not a reference to conversion. It's a reference to not salvation, but sanctification. Post-salvation realities, after they were already saved. So let's look at Hebrews 11. He says in the first verse, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the, convictions of, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, that's by faith, the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was made out of things which are was not made, excuse me, was not made out of things which are visible. And then he gives specific examples. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith Though he is dead, he still speaks. Second example, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those Who seek him. Third example. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark. How did Noah prepare an ark? In reverence. That's a a worship word. He did it reverentially. For the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Fourth example. By faith, Abraham, and he spends a ton of time on Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. To imagine Abraham being already told by God, for sure, this land that I have you in will belong to you and and to your descendants. It wasn't just to your descendants, but to you and your descendants. And he said, everywhere you walk, I'll give it to you. So you wonder why Abraham is moving around nomadically throughout Canaan? Well, he knows with each step, this is mine, right, (laughs) essentially, And so he's walking all over the place in Canaan, traveling around, moving. He's counting on God to give him the very thing he promised. Next example is in verse 11. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Not in chapter 18 when she laughed, but at some point (laughs) between... That time and the time when she actually had Isaac a year later, she believed God. She believed the promise that she would conceive. Therefore, there was born, verse 12, even one man and him as good as dead, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sands which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. There's a lot there. Smed even mentioned it in what we talked about. This is looking forward to a city, a country to come. One that is heavenly, possesses heavenly qualities. There's something heavenly about it, that Abraham was not looking for that when he was on earth traveling around. We'll look at that in a second. Verse 17, and we'll look at demonstrations of Abraham's uh, faith in just a second. Verse 17, "By by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son, it was he of whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be named. Isaac was, or Abraham was told in Genesis 21, don't be afraid to separate Isaac from Ishmael. Don't be afraid to, to lose a son, in a sense, and exile him and Hagar, because it's Isaac through whom your descendants will be named. That was chapter 21. Go to chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. So he sent away his other son. He's got Isaac with him, dwelling with him as an only son now. You see verse uh, 34 at the end of chapter 21, 21, 34. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistine many, for many days. That's why he's doing that. Verse twenty. Verse uh, 1 in chapter 21, now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. Here's your only son now. Here's how God tests him. Abraham, he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. He's sending him on another journey. You don't know exactly where you're going. I'll show you. Just trust me. And I want you to offer up your only son. That's the test. We're going to be able to get into the mind of Abraham. Moses helps us get into the mind of Abraham here. As he tells the story, you see exactly what Abraham is believing. And you see his expression of faith that he is just taking God at his word by what Abraham communicates to the other people with him. So let's keep reading. Verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham didn't wait to obey God. He got up early the next morning. He didn't even sleep in. Gets up early the next morning because he believes God so much that he's eager to obey, and he had three days to change his mind. For three days, he endured in faith and just trusted God till he finally gets to the place where they're supposed to sacrifice Isaac that God had shown him. Look at, in verse 5, what Abraham says to his young men. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Why is this an expression of faith? You see, he's, going, he's considering this worship. He's considering this worship. But if you pay attention to the, the pronouns, he tells the young men, I and the lad, the lad is Isaac, the young man is Isaac. I and the lad will go over there, and who does Abraham says will worship and return to you? Do you see it? He says we. I and the lad will go over there, will worship, and we I and the lad, we will return to you. Is Abraham expecting not to kill his son? No, he's not. He, he, he is planning. He's already chopped the wood. He gives Isaac the wood and he march up the mountain. He's in his mind fully convinced, I'm going to have to kill my son as a burnt offering. But he tells the young men, we're coming back though. We're coming back to you. Go back to Hebrews 11. Because the author of Hebrews knows exactly what's going on in Genesis. He's taking Moses at his word. He's taking God at his word through Moses. And look at verse 19 in chapter 11. He says that Abraham considered... That God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received Isaac back as a type. That's not new revelation that Abraham was believing in in a resurrection. Abraham was counting on God resurrecting Isaac after he killed him as as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. And that's why in his telling the men who were with him, we'll come back to you. You see, he's fully trusting God. That was not, remember, remember, that is not when Abraham was justified. That is not when he was declared righteous. That was Abraham as a sanctified man exercising faith again. Genesis 15:6, he believed God, and God credited that belief in God to Abraham as righteousness. That was seven chapters earlier. Abraham was declared righteous righteous by faith. The point is, the same faith that justified Abraham before God, Abraham continued exercising the same faith in his obedience to God, in his sanctification. So we know that salvation is by faith alone. Sanctification is also by faith. And it's by faith that requires exertion and effort. And then you have all of the other examples in Hebrews 11 that serve for the same purpose, that these people are, who are already justified by God are exercising faith in God in an ongoing way is the point. And so in all, if we are to be people who rightly worship God, then we have to be people who take God at his word. Not just when it comes to the gospel. Yes, when it comes to the gospel. Certainly when it comes to the gospel, of course, regarding Christ and him crucified. But everything else too. Everything else too. When God makes a promise in the Old Testament, we have to take God at his word. We can't change God's promises as they occur in the Old Testament and make them for a different group of people. That's really what's at stake there. I'm so glad Smith has been hammering that as he's been going through Romans 9 through 11. But we have to take God at his word. That is what it means to have faith. And so take, for example, uh, a child who doesn't have all the answers that they want for why mom and dad won't let me do this, why I can't hang out with these friends, why I can't go to this place, why can't I have this gadget? If that child were to say, I don't have all the answers, and in this moment right now, I'm not even happy about the response that I got from my parents. But I do know that Ephesians 6.1 says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, because that's the right thing to do. And so even though I, I don't feel great about the instruction that I've gotten, I know that that's the best thing for me because that's what God is telling me to do. And so they obey their parents. Yes, yes, mom. Yes, dad. And I'm going to try and do that joyfully. That is an act of faith. They are taking God at his word that, they sh- that the best thing for them in that moment is that they should obey their parents. And so they're believing God. That's an act of worship, can be an act of worship for a child. I want to apply this concept to a case study. That's what you have on the back of your notes. And so we'll take anxiety. Go to Matthew 6. In counseling, if you were counseling someone with anxiety... What principles could you draw on, remind them of? What principles might come into play as you're calling them to believe God? Everything that God has said. This is an interesting example. You don't, as Jesus actually gives the cure for anxiety. I love the, the NASB's heading there, the cure for anxiety. That's spot on. And as Jesus gives us the cure for anxiety, this is pre-crucifixion and resurrection. So, the gospel substitutionary atonement is not his counseling method. Justification by God and is not his counseling method. But he does give us plenty of truths to to concern ourselves with truths that help cure anxiety, and we'll see that the person who would be cured for anxiety has lots of things that they need to believe in order to stop experiencing that anxiety. Because we don't have time to give all of the the context, here's my summary of the context. I think I left it for you in your notes. This is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. And if you were to read all the way from 5 all the way to the end of 6, that section on anxiety, here's how I would summarize it, what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching that in order to possess true God-honoring righteousness, that is a practical righteousness that begins at the heart level, in order to possess that, one must do his deeds before God prioritizing heavenly, future-oriented rewards rather than earthly, temporal, esteem, and wealth. That's my summary of Matthew. what he's teaching in Matthew 5 and, and 6, and that his shouldn't be capitalized in your notes. In order to do deeds, this is about practical righteousness. You see that in, in uh, chapter, chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, do better righteousness than the, than the scribes and Pharisees. He's saying people who do enter the kingdom of heaven are characterized by a not hypocrisy, not hypocritical righteousness like the Pharisees are. He says uh, something similar in, in 48. What kind of righteousness is he calling them to? Not a righteousness that can just appease man. But chapter 5, verse 48, therefore you must be—you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's calling them to perfection, not just doing their deeds before men. In chapter 6, verse 1, he, he's having the same conversation. And so he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you will have no, no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And then he gives specific examples like giving and prayer, and then he teaches them how to pray. The kingdom saturates the entire Sermon on the Mount. And then he comes to, to talk about avoiding, in order to avoid a righteousness that's only done before men, so that you get rewarded by their applause instead of being rewarded by God, you need to, according to verse 19, store up treasures on earth where moth, and rust desto- where moth and rust don't destroy. Excuse me, do not store up treasures for yourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But instead store up treasures for yourselves in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. He's getting at the same principle. The person who's going to do righteous deeds before God and not merely before men needs to be storing up treasure in heaven. That's how you do that. By storing up treasure in heaven, you do your deeds primarily mindful of God, right? With worship on your mind, with the glory of God as the intended aim, not glory from men. He says in verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. He's getting at the same thing. Where are you going to place value? Here on earth where men can congratulate you? Or are you going to seek the honor of God to be esteemed by him? You can't have it both ways. And then without any change in subject, because you can't serve God and wealth, because you can't prioritize what's in heaven and here, he says, verse 25, because that's the case, for this reason, I say to you, do not be worried. Do not be anxious about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body, more than clothing? Because you can't worship God and wealth, because you can't prioritize what's in heaven and what's here, don't be worried about your life. Don't be anxious. What Jesus is getting at as he begins to talk specifically about anxiety, about worry, is the the principle that whenever anxiety is present for the Christian, for the Christian, whenever anxiety is present, they have divided allegiances. Their allegiance is divided. They're claiming to serve God, but they're actually worshiping or serving something else. Because you can't serve two masters, don't be worried about your life. And so Jesus, will see just some principles. Just briefly, I'll let you, you read all of the principles there for anxiety But Jesus diagnoses the problem as, first, an attempt to serve God in wealth. Uh, He also reveals in verse 30, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? What's wrong with the person who is... Anxious with the Christian who's anxious, it's a faith issue. They, their faith is too little. They're not believing something true that God has told them to believe, that God has told them is true. And then in those last four sections, you have some of the things that anxious Christians, that God is calling anxious people to believe. What does God teach anxious people is true about God? This is all in verses 25 to 34. He teaches us that God is a father, that God is in heaven. God provides for worthless birds. God adorns grass with incredible, incredibly beautiful flowers. He teaches us that God concerns himself with the most worthless details of life, like beautifying grass with flowers. He teaches us that God knows our needs in verse 32. He teaches us that God will provide what we need in verses 30 and 33. All of that in those verses. There's there's not only things that Jesus teaches that are true about God, but also he teaches things that are true about creation. Like the necessities of life are ultimately God's concern and not ours. Our lives are about more than food and clothing, things essential to life, even the most essential things to life, like food and clothing. Those, those things is not why you exist. Birds don't sow or reap or gather into barns. He reminds anxious people of that. He reminds us that men are more valuable than birds. God knows, if he is your father, that you need these things, and he considers you more valuable to himself than the worthless birds that are sold for a penny. He teaches us about creation that the glory of man can't even compare with the beauty of flowers. He talks about Solomon and all of his glory couldn't compare to a beautiful field that God adorns with flowers. Which makes me think, I really need to know more about flowers. Because I wouldn't choose the beauty of a flower over Solomon's glory. That means I don't know as much as God knows about flowers. As much as Jesus knows about flowers, apparently. Apparently. He teaches us that grass is temporary and therefore hardly worth adorning. To think about some field somewhere where nobody's ever been, nobody even lives there, nobody even takes care of it. Who cares? It's a worthless field. Well, God cares. And he sp- spends his time. That's probably not an accurate way of describing God. He doesn't have time. He's outside of time, but you get the picture. God actually concerns himself with beautifying places that man never even sees. He can, he can handle the necessities of life, things that actually are important to us, is the point. He has other truths specifically about anxiety, like worry betrays wrong worship that we already discussed. Worry accomplishes nothing. Who, which of you can add a span to his life by worrying? It accomplishes nothing. It's worthless. Don't worry about worrying. You're wasting time. It's worthless. It's equally useless to all men. Worry is characteristic not of believers, but it's something that characterizes unbelievers, those who don't have God as their father. And it's future-oriented. It concerns with itself. Worry concerns itself with things that don't even exist yet. They're about the future. And then he actually not only calls us to know certain things about God, about creation, about anxiety specifically. But he also calls anxious people to do certain things. It's not just, hey, believe this, believe this, believe this, but it's believe this, what we're talking about, possess faith, believe what God has said about these things, and as you believe those things, do this from that faith. Things like consider the birds. That's a command. Consider the birds. Consider the uselessness of worry. Consider the flowers. Stop worrying is a command. And ultimately, he comes to the end of his instruction and says, here's what you should be concerned about. Concern yourself with God's coming kingdom and the obedience that characterizes those who enter it. That's what we should concern ourselves with. How do you gain interest into, into the kingdom? You must be born again, John 3. That Smith talked about. You must be born again. Believe God. You you will you will inherit eternal life. And how do you know who possesses that type of faith? Who's getting into the kingdom? The type of faith that obtains the kingdom? They obey and they concern themselves with the righteousness of God that we see unfolded for us in these chapters. And so in our counseling, you're not just aiming at a change in behavior or rectifying a certain situation. But at the forefront of our mind, because God is after his glory, which means our worship, then the people that we're trying to help as we help each other, we should be aiming at what is there that this person that I'm talking to needs to be believing? Where's faith lacking? What's true that they're not considering? How can I help stimulate them to loving good deeds and, and, and further faith? And what God has said is true. And that's just a, an inseparable part inseparable part of God glorifying counsel. So we don't have time for, for questions today. I'm sticking around. Um, we've got two more parts coming up on uh, change. And, and hopefully we'll, we'll get more practical on how to actually accomplish this when we're, when we're counseling other people. So thank you for staying. You are dismissed.